Well, I think, yeah, the, the, the dichotomy between privacy and security only exists assuming you actually trust the government to go catch those bad actors and you don't think the government is the bad actor <laughs> itself, right? <laughs> Welcome back to I'm the Villain. So today it's just DeAndre and I. And yeah, why don't you just go into what we're going to talk about? Yeah, so I think we're going to bill this episode as the privacy episode. But the thing that inspired me to talk about this with Isabel um, is the fact that I am a pretty big like true crime buff. I hate the word buff. (laughs) <laughs> I I consume a lot of true crime in the form of podcasts and sometimes I'm like documentaries and stuff, but mas- mostly podcasts. And if you, maybe some of our listeners are true crime people too, if you are really into the true crime world, then you know about the kind of popularization recently of this thing called familial genetic matching that a lot of like big players in the true crime world are really advocating for and this is this is becoming popularized because it was the way that people caught or that the FBI caught the Golden State Killer and very very quick background on Golden State Killer if you don't know who he is essentially in like in the 70s and 80s there was this dude who was breaking into people's homes across the state of California he, like, raped, um, like, I think over 50 women and committed 12 murders. And it was pretty, I mean, I think the thing that made him, aside from the sheer volume of victims, the thing that made him so scary was that he, like, he would, like, tie their husbands up and, like, make their husbands watch. Or they would, like, or he would, like, tie their husbands up and, like, place a stack of plates on the husband's back and he would be like if i hear these plates fall then i'm gonna kill your wife or something like that you know um just like really really horrific stuff and so he stopped being active in the 80s and um you know the case went very cold and recently through the efforts of a lot of people but specifically a now deceased crime journalist named Michelle McNamara um, and a still alive journalist named Billy Jensen um, was recently caught um, through familial genetic matching. And essentially what this is, is um, there are companies kind of like 23andMe and Ancestry.com that collect people's DNA profiles you know, most of the time, they and most of the time, it's to offer a service of, you know, what do you, you know, what is your, what is your, what is, is it ethnicity? What's your ethnicity? Your race? Yeah, your race. But you know, where do you, where, where do your ancestors come from? It, like it, it can like twenty three and Me pinpoints geographical location. Uh, yeah. So twenty three Me does that. Ancestry dot com, I think, does mostly like finding old ancestors and tracing your family tree. There's this other one, and this is the one that they used to catch the Golden State Killer, called uh, GED Match, Jed Match. And Jed Match is, um, it essentially tells, it's, I think it's more so health-focused. 
and once you like you know like it tells you what diseases you're you're susceptible to and things like that um and essentially what these what the police did was they went to GEDmatch because 23andMe and Ancestry.com um, have it in their privacy that they specifically will not allow the law enforcement or, you know, external parties to, like, gain access to your DNA profile. GEDmatch did not have that and still doesn't have it, um, that, in their, that in their terms of service. So police um, accessed their database, got... Um, you know, they, and they had a, a piece of Golden State Killer's uh, genetic profile from, you know, the countless crimes that he left his DNA at. He wasn't being conscious of DNA because in the 70s and 80s, that wasn't really a thing. So they found, like, a distant relative of, of GSK and then traced, just traced it up the family tree and eventually found him. Um, and... He's very old now. He's like in his late seventies, early eighties, um, and um, he's obviously not murdered someone for a very, for a very long time. But he is going to be spending the rest of his life in prison. And so, staunch true crime advocates are really excited about this and frustrated with companies like Twenty Three and Me and Ancestry that won't like you know to them it's just like why won't you open your doors like just so all we want to do is solve like solve old murders or solve old crimes you know and on the other hand you have like people that are just really concerned i think fairly so with the privacy implications of you know the law enforcement being a, being able to query these like large databases of people's dna profiles also, do you happen to know, are they buying this data? Does the police buy the data? For well, Do they buy to buy access to the database? I I don't. For GEDmatch, I don't think so. I think it's open source. Well, that, I mean, in and of itself, you there's, there's one level of like, okay, should I allow the police to have access to my genetic information? And there's a whole other level. It's like, should I let literally everyone have access to my genetic information? Yeah. I'm like, right. I'm That's, I think, a very check. reasonable concern if someone said, I don't want everyone knowing my genetic information. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to fact check myself on what I just said. OK. Um, it says. No court order is, is required to mine GEDmatch's open source. Tr yeah. Open source trove of. DNA profile. So yeah, it is open source. But it's not it sounds like it's maybe not linked to your actual personally identifiable information. Yeah, it says right? um So, yeah, it's open source and it contains genetic genetic bits of code that can be tied to health data and other personally identifiable identifiable information. Wow. Currently, there aren't any laws that regulate how law enforcement employs long-range familial, familial searching, which hobbyists and do-gooders have turned to for years to find bi biological families of adoptees. Um, 
but some legal experts argue its use in criminal cases raise grave privacy concerns. They expect to see a legal challenge at some point. I'm surprised there hasn't already been a legal challenge. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because, like, at least you can argue if you're trying to find a family member. Like, they'll probably reach out to the service and the service will reach out to the person saying, hey, there's somebody who's trying to get in touch with you. Do you want us to be able to release your information to them? Yeah. Right? But... That's at least consensual, right? Obviously, if you're finding murderers, it's not consensual, right? And so it's sort of like, what do you do with that space, you know? Yeah. And I'm guessing, I mean, I'm trying to think about, like, I'm thinking to my head, like, wow, they, the profiles can't just be linked to people's names, can they? But I guess they very well could, and, like, the average person couldn't really do much with that, right? Like. Yeah. Like. If my name was linked to my genetic profile and I sent that, you would to have you, to know, right, something about DNA to actually decipher any yeah. meaningful information from that. You'd have to know what you were looking for, essentially. Yeah. Um. So, I guess the my question. But if you did know what you were looking for, it would seem like it would be pretty dangerous yeah. to let someone have your <laughs> your DNA, right? Well. Here's the thing. If someone learned that you have like epilepsy and you were a really important state official, like, somebody could exploit that if there was like a foreign government or something. Yeah, I'm glad you gave that example because I've I've really been thinking about examples that, like, you know, plausible examples of genetic discrimination. Well, I think the one that I think of first is it seems like it would be hugely lucrative for these companies to sell your health information to a health insurance company so the health insurance company could charge higher premiums. Yes. To people who had these genetic... But so I was talking to a doctor friend of mine recently about that specific use case, and he said that that is currently illegal under HIPAA. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, that would be not allowed. But that's why I'm wondering is, is this similar to them selling it to an insurance company if they're selling it to the police? Well, I don't think they're not selling it to the police. The police, it's open source. The police just used it. That's true. That's true. If 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 it was like twenty three and Me and they wanted to actually make money off of it, yeah, as opposed to just making it open source, is that above board or not? You know. Yeah. So, and I think someone else was like, you know, maybe you can use. Like, moving away from, like, disease stuff, maybe you can use genetic profile to, like, you know, all of a sudden you have a huge database of where you can, like, look at, you know, genetic ma or genetic attributes between, like, people of color versus, like, white people versus, like, whatever. And, like, maybe that could fuel some kind of, like, you know, more traditional discrimination that we're used to just by, like, adding genetics in there. Yeah. Or as we begin to use more biometric data for things, right? Like your fingerprint to open your phone. Like, could you somehow try to, like, recreate someone's fingerprint using their genetic code? I have no idea if that's possible. That's the hard part is right? that this all feels, it feels very high tech, right? Yeah. And it feels like while there might, there may not be, um, like, it's hard, it's kind of hard for me to imagine um, large scale disastrous effects of like having access to people's genetic profiles um but maybe you know it could be like in li as little as like you know x amount of time oh i, I could be like oh yeah then th it's very clear why we shouldn't do that and like the reason just hasn't been invented yet mm -hmm. yeah you, you know but on the other side of things like true crime people are like yeah but like all of these murders and like like we don't you know no one wants to use it for those things we just want to use it to solve murders 
Yeah, well, that's a slippery slope, right? Yeah. That, that I think, is the really fundamental privacy-security dichotomy, right? Is, like, people like my dad are insanely... I don't even want to say paranoid because, you know, there have been leaks that that people do legitimately use this information for stuff, so it's not even really paranoia. But, like, you know... He's really into Edward Snowden and is like, you know, they need to. And, and recently, supposedly, they actually did a court did rule uh, the NSA's surveillance programs as being illegal. Wow. Yeah. So Snowden recently tweeted, I think it was September 2nd or 4th. He's like, I never thought I would live to see the day when they did this. And this is like a monumental, you know, case. Yeah, um, huge. From a privacy standpoint right um but basically like there is this trade-off between if you want to have the best security possible in the sense of wanting to to lock down terrorism or child sex trafficking or all these like various bad actors right you would prefer to have a relatively open aka not private system right you want to be able to read people's like facebook messages and you know text messages to each other so that you can like troll through all that information and find people who are doing suspicious stuff yes right and if you have a system that's more private and this is like a really systemic thing right because like you know services like facebook and other messaging companies are trying to figure out whether they should encrypt their messages because then all of the partnerships they have with these like anti-terrorism organizations or the department of homeland security or like you know all of these different orgs is basically like they are cutting off those relationships yeah. because they won't be able to read those messages anymore. Yeah. I, I right? try to think about like where I stand and I feel like, I don't know. I feel kind of apathetic in a way because I, and maybe this is a defeatist mindset, but I feel like the government already has my, all of my shit. And you know, now, so like for me, it's like, it doesn't matter. And if, they already have access to my shit, then, like, I should just utilize all of these, like, fun products and services that, like, give up my privacy because, like, they already have it. So, and, and, and all of these, I guess all of these concerns are embedded in the kind of what-if mentality of, like, sure, our government, you know, I mean, they're obviously already spying on us, but if they ever decided to do something more than that, like, more malicious, or if it ever fall into the wrong hands, I guess. Like, is that what we're worried about? Well, I think, yeah, the, the, the dichotomy between privacy and security only exists assuming you actually trust the government to go catch those bad actors and you don't think the government is the bad actor itself. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> right. then everything is just privacy. Right. And then if, right? if you do view the government as a bad actor, then it just becomes, oh, okay, like I need to keep as much of myself away from the government as I can. Yeah. And... That, you know, the the thing about our government is that you might trust it at one point, right? But then it, it can be very volatile. Next four years, you can suddenly not trust it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you can't, you can't really roll back the permissions you've given to the government once you've given them to them. Exactly. You can't be like, oh, well, I trust Obama, right? Because Obama's not going to be in office for the rest of his life, right? <laughs> like... <laughs> And so, like, you know, it, it probably doesn't hurt to have a mentality of, like, you know, I don't know if I want to just give this kind of blank check to people that I don't know. 
It doesn't. It does not necessarily paranoid is what I'm saying to have that mentality. And then there's the other thing of like, because I feel like the focus is really on cold cases. Like, we want to solve these cold cases, and I get that. You know, some killers are serial killers. Well, what's the point? How is that actually helping anyone Exa- with a cold case? Exactly. That's where that's where I was going. So some some killers are serial killers, and like, you know. Are, like need to be need to be caught right away. I guess <laughs> some like GSK, you know, had had been inactive for many many decades at that point, and there's always this kind of amorphous mention of like, so happy the family finally got justice, or like these all these victims got justice, right? But and it, you know, I have never had a, a heinous crime committed against me or someone in my family, but. It just feels like that would be such a hollow justice. Like, this dude... Having this 80-year-old man just sit in prison instead of an old person's home for the rest of their life? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like... <laughs> like, they're touting it as this big win, right? But yeah. we, you, you've already lost. Like, mm-hmm. the damage has been done. Well, that, I think, has to do with just the our, notion, our evolving notion of justice generally. Right. Right? I think that we are, as a society, moving towards a place of not seeing justice as being retributive, but, like, deter- a deterrent, right? Preventative. Right. So, yeah. So, like, yeah, we get to close these... We get to close all these cases. Um, and... But, you know, I don't want to get caught up in, like... Because there's, there's, there's kind of this, like, straw man argument of, like, uh, well, these people are still, like, present dangerous to society... And like that, like that maybe is true, but a lot of murder. But if they had actually caught an active murderer, we would know because they would have made a big deal about it. Yeah, right. And like, so they're clearly not doing. Yeah, that. and and a lot, you know, most people that murder people aren't serial killers, right? Like that's a very important distinction. And yeah. true crime really likes to, and this is like, you know, this is I have a lot of nuanced feelings about true crime obviously i consume a lot of it but you know it's true crime is, is obsessed with serial killers right and it's really really which is like point oh 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 one percent it's right? really really easy to get like caught up because they're the big sexy like wild crazy cases yeah but very should you have a systemic reform just to catch those tiny tiny percentage of people yes you know that's the question yeah as opposed to you know the random person that shot someone 10 years ago or like the random person that like raped and killed someone 13 years ago that left DNA. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a case to be made. Um, apparently there's like someone at John Hopkins who, who argues this, that like, you know, like for the 2016 uh, Facebook, like Russian hacker, not even hackers. They were just like trying to like, you know, post Facebook ads or something. I don't think they were actually even hacking into anything. Yeah. Right. Uh, and they were like, oh, like, they're trying to sway the election. I mean, supposedly those people only, like, actually, in terms of, like, you know, the number of people they got their content in front of, it was only in, like, the maybe, like, tens of thousands or something, right? But then as soon as Facebook, like, lets people know and, like, they think they're being transparent or whatever by, like, telling people, oh, we found this thing, right? Mm-hmm. Then it's in the front page of the New York Times. And suddenly the Russians have their content in front of millions more people than they would have otherwise, Right. Sure, but isn't but it's it, it's being it's in front of people in the way of like this is a this is a fraud like this is a hoax. Well, so 
so the, this guy's argument is that yes it's being framed differently as opposed to like you know presumably somebody who's posting from like a you know pro-trump account it's like being framed as like actually being pro-trump as opposed to like oh like look at this bad actor but supposedly in terms of the actual effects that it has it's still motivated people to not vote because they're like oh my god the system is compromised got it right i see what you mean and so the idea is that you could actually be having a net negative effect on democracy by publicizing it as opposed to not publicizing it because you're still regardless of like how you're framing it people are hearing this like oh my god like you know someone's meddling in the elections like why should i bother yeah like maybe facebook should have just told the government and not anyone else well, that's the thing is like they don't technically have an obligation to tell anyone. Yeah, I know, but I'm saying right. Like, in terms and of so, like, if we were to make a, right. if we were to make legislation around it of like, okay, now we have to go in and regulate all of these various companies that have all this data on people, should we force them to disclose and to who? Right? It is forcing them to disclose actually potentially having a net negative impact on people when we think that they're being really good and being transparent. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, if it's and supposedly it's not even on a in a partisan way, it like basically motivated equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans to not vote. I think that makes sense. I think that a lot. I mean, a lot more people. I think there are a lot of people on either sides of the aisle that yeah are super just like discontented and and skeptical of the government in general, mm-hmm. and like. And if that was their goal, if that's what the Russians were trying to do the whole all what you know all along, then they basically succeeded way more than they would have otherwise. Yeah, it seems like they succeeded succeeded on, on all fronts, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like you know, helped get Trump elected. The government or the the country's in kind of in shambles. You know, we're kind of burning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, GG, good job, you did yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, so I get. You, I, I'm interested to get your opinion. Like, what do you think? Do we? Do you think cops should be able to access people's genetic information to solve crimes? Well, I mean, if they're defund crimes, definitely not. I don't give a shit about that, right? If they're current crime, that's a problem though. With a lot of these like law enforcement things, when you when you actually catch someone, you have no idea how many people you're saving, right? Like, your your argument is like, oh, I caught this person who could have, you know, raped or murdered, like, you know, another 15 people or something. But you have no idea, right? So it's really hard to measure what's the actual efficacy of any intervention that you're doing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's really hard to measure. And, um, but I, I, I see it, you know, I, like, I feel like. Especially with, I, I honestly feel like using um, the DNA to solve rapes is more compelling for me than using them to solve murders. Mm-hmm. Because at least they're alive. The victim is alive. Yeah. Right? Is that your argument? Yeah, and I feel like rapes have a much lower solve rate than murders do. Mm-hmm. Because, so, and this is, maybe I should have given this background a little bit earlier, but there's something called CODIS. Mm-hmm. And CODIS is a DNA, a, a, a national DNA database of um, people that have committed crimes. 
mm-hmm. but obviously very limited. You have to get caught to be in CODIS, right? So mm-hmm. my point in saying that is that law enforcement is obviously already using DNA, right? But it's just like, how much do we want them to open the door for them? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, for me, like, you, I feel like, you know, I, 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 this is literally just a gut feeling. I have nothing to back this up. But I feel like someone that, like, like I feel like rapes are less of a one-off offense than a, than a murder might be, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, like, raping someone, I feel, you know, this is all, like I said, just shooting from the hip. Like, it feels like more of, like, a compulsive act than, like, you know, maybe you're in a gang and you shoot somebody. Or, like, maybe you're, you know, in a struggle and, like, someone ends up dead. Or whatever. Yeah. I think that my opinion on this, as of recently, like, as we're thinking about the police state and defunding the police and shit like that, I would totally take 100% privacy and shut down all of our surveillance operations in favor of pumping those billions of dollars into things that actually prevent crime. Right? Because, like, we're just starting to think about crime as something different now. As It's not an inherent trait of individuals that they're, like, these crazy, terrible people. Right? People act based on motivations that are formed based on their environment. Right? And we could be doing so much more with the same amount of money that we're using to surveil people. Right? <laughs> yeah. To actually prevent crimes by investing in, you know, changing those environments. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm kind of with you there. It feels like, especially with the lens that we have been putting on criminal justice in these, in these past couple of months in general, right? Like, yeah, for me, it's like, to what end, right? We, we open, um, like we open the floodgates of DNA for the cops. We catch thousands more killers, rapists, whatever. And then we, we just round them all up and put them all in jail. And then what, right? Like, I think I've already, you know, we've already talked about how, on the show about how, like, jail is not, it's not, they're, you know, they're not effective at doing anything, really, besides yeah. det- detaining people. Yeah. I mean, to me, a lot of this stuff is very similar to TSA, right? TSA was this, like, gut reaction that people had to 9-11, right, that killed literally 165th of the number of people the pandemic is currently killing, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and going. Exactly. Right. And so when we think about crime and like, oh, like we're doing all this stuff like, you know, to prevent a potentially catastrophic event. Right. We just have such a warped, you know, understanding or, you know, perspective on what those catastrophic events actually are going to be. Right. And things like terrorist attacks seem scarier to us than, you know, a potential pandemic. So like we invest in TSA and not in public health. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but you know. But hopefully, now that we've actually had a pandemic, that'll fucking change going forward, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you know, but if we invested, like, going off of what you were saying, like, if we invested money into like, um, like under you know underinvested communities, and if we invested money in like mental health services for kids, so we could figure out, you know, especially with some of these little, especially with some of these boys, like if they're growing up with compulsions, like that might be common for you know a rapist to have like maybe like we can apply interventions more effectively like you know if we put put more money into actual preventative measures then maybe we would need quote-unquote need as much surveillance as what we have now Mm -hmm. yeah i can get down with that 
Um, but like, yeah, it is like a really hard sell to be like, okay, let's just put a stop to all of this, like, you know, sex trafficking, you know, anti-sex yeah. trafficking work if or something. I mean, right? I get it because like a lot of people are, this is something that I've really, really been thinking about recently. A lot of people are really bought in to our current criminal justice system, right? They're like, yeah, they are really bought in like, like, oh yeah, like, you know, because it's, it's what we've been taught, like synonymous, like justice is synonymous with prison right so and like you know so this is really like this like there's how could there be anything ever wrong with bringing this many people to quote-unquote justice at the same time yeah that's why i'm actually kind of interested in is there this like conversation that's happening within like you know crime junkie communities about justice you know what i mean because there's like i mean that seems to me to be the root of this fascination right with like why there's like such popularity of these types of shows right i mean i don't i think it's less of justice and more so like people that are really interested in in like how essentially how fucked up one human can be to another human it's like a more of a psychology thing yes i think for me it's a psychology thing mm-hmm. um but that's you know i obviously you know i think that within myself i've been thinking a lot about like what my you know what what my consumption of true crime means about me and like the average like consumer of true crime and i found that you know there are tons of podcasters a lot of them are white women most of them are white women (laughs) that that are true crime podcasters yes Okay. And, um... I wonder why women as opposed to men. I don't know. I actually wouldn't have necessarily... Is it because they're, like... Women are... Women are... I mean, they're more likely to be the victims of these types of crimes. Yeah, I was about to say, like, white women are also most often the victims of the kinds of crimes that are, are reported on true crime podcasts. Right. Um... So maybe it's a like taking back power thing. Maybe it's like an education thing. Maybe it's a whatever you know. Um, but it seems like you know from what I've heard from like some of my favorite podcasters and some even from people that I don't whose podcasts I don't really like, they are largely I'd say very very pro cop. You know, like yeah, which is really and this is this is something that's really remarkable to me because when i listen to true crime podcasts i don't understand how the people that are reporting these stories cannot recognize the so aggressively clear trend of cops botching investigations um of cops do you think it, are you saying like intentionally intentionally and unintentionally it's i've heard i've heard plenty of stories of both okay you know of cops you know, coming to a scene, deciding in their head who they think they've done the crime, and then only doing work to try and pin pin the crime on that person and not chasing any of the leads, right? I've heard, I shit you not, Isabel, dozens of stories like that. Yeah. And, you know, with all the true crime that I've consumed, the vast majority, of, you know, this might be me overstepping my bounds, I think, I, I, I feel like I can probably say over half of the cases that I listen to are unsolved because they were mishandled by police mm-hmm. and so or you know and so i and also and my favorite my favorite um 
crime podcast is called Crime Junkie. These people, you know, they have intentionally covered cases that they framed as these cases didn't get enough media time or get enough get enough time from police because the victims weren't weren't white women, right? They recognize the disparity of like the ways of our criminal criminal justice system, but still managed to to present as pretty pro cop. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess my, my point here is I feel like the point of view of the listener matters a lot, like. Because when I listen to these shows, like it just reinforces my belief that like cops are extremely effective at doing their ineffective at doing murder investigations. And when you say cops, are you talking about like the local police, or are you talking about like the FBI coming? Because presumably there's some kind of expert they would call to do I these investigations, right? Typically, police departments have a homicide unit that has detectives, mm-hmm. and the, and these detectives are doing the police the police work for homicides. Okay, but. So when I say the cops that are usually investigating these murders are detectives, so I'm referring to them most yeah. of the time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, typically if the FBI gets called into a crime, I think they like they do a decent job with it. But there's definitely a disparity in the kinds of crimes that the FBI gets called into, right? Right. Because the FBI only, only gets on a crime for, like, one of three reasons. One, it's somehow a federal crime, and... You know, maybe across state boundaries or whatever, and then like they defer to the national law enforcement agency. Two, the local agency calls like requests for the FBI to come in because it's too much for them to handle. Or three, the F- the case gets um so much notoriety that the FBI catch wind of it and come in and take over the case. Oh, okay. Um. And so you know, so and I. It, so my point is that most of the time, by the time the FBI comes in, the shitty police work has been done and it's like, and the time has elapsed and it can't be undone. Yeah. Cause it's really difficult for me to parse like how much of it is botched because it's legitimately just difficult to do investigations because like, how can I you think, quote unquote get practice if you're just a local, you know, investigator, there's probably not going to be that many, you know, murders for you to quote unquote like practice doing whatever it is you do. Yeah. Right. When you ask cops, you know, in hindsight, why did this thing slip through the cracks, or why did you know why did this go so wrong? It's almost always their their answer is almost always we just like we don't have enough resources to give all these murders like equal attention, right? And I think that's true. I don't think I don't think they're lying. I do think it's that's one of the many issues that 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 are present in policing today. Um. But, you know, it's. It ends up, we end up with this system of, like, this very, very flawed system of murder investigation where sometimes it goes right and, like, you get your guy, like, for the easy ones. And sometimes innocent people go to jail for a crime they probably didn't commit. Sometimes people get convicted off of no evidence. Sometimes, um, you know, the victim is in a marginalized community and the cops don't really care for the first couple of days. And... You know, most a lot of these murder cases start as missing persons cases, and you know there's definitely a disparity in the way that the cops respond to a, you know a black woman that hasn't been seen in a couple of days, as opposed to like you know a white woman that hasn't been seen in a couple of days, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. So, you know, my point in saying all of this is that it seems like because I you know because the true crime community 
is so white and the narrative is so, is dominated or is reported by white people and because i think the you know the the material itself lends itself to being so pro cop i think that most people that are criminal that are true crime fans are probably pretty against police abolition yeah um which you know is problematic probably to me well i don't know probably just just generally most people in america are against police abolition i feel like it's a really small minority yeah of people who are truly trying to defund the police and they're having a really outsized impact, which is crazy, you know, yeah. but I do think that probably the average American is nowhere close to wanting to defund the police. Yeah. I think that like, regardless of whether you're in like a transformative justice or a traditional criminal justice framework, I think you still need people to go and figure out like to go and catch killers. Mm-hmm. I think that, it would definitely be just not politically feasible to just decide not to do anything. Right. Right. <laughs> it seems like it's going to have to be somebody's job to go and catch people that kill people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, somebody's job to, like, take on these investigative duties. And as I listen to these podcasts and I consume this true crime, you know, it this is a skill set. And you can be taught this skill set. It doesn't need to be cops doing this shit. You know, yeah, like, and apparently it's a skill set that's actually really, really difficult to like. You know, I think I was reading in Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell where he was talking about how like people are just so bad at reading people who are not from their, you know, yeah. cultural environment. And like people are so bad, even like, you know, well trained FBI cops are bad at telling when people are lying, right? Absolutely. They just, you know, it, it, you know, it. And there's like this, there's like this lore around like a cop should trust his gut. Like uh, the gut is the yeah. most, the gut is the like the you know the best resource a cop can have, and that's bullshit, right? Yeah, it's all total bullshit, like, right? Your gut is often wrong, especially if you're already a little bit racist, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or um, not even like, you know, racist per se. Like it could be the kind of thing. Like at the beginning of of, of um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, he talks about the Sandra Bland case in particular, mm-hmm. right? And there was all of these micro interactions that were going on that led to like she, for example, was smoking a cigarette. Right. And the cop, as someone who did not come from like an environment where people smoke very much, didn't understand that like what it meant for her to be smoking a cigarette was that she was trying to calm her nerves. Yeah, she was like he thought that she was being like disrespectful or something and it was gonna like you know put ash on his like shoes or something right and so like he was just reading all of these signals really wrong and she was like trying to basically signal that she was trying to de-escalate by smoking the cigarette and stuff like that so there's just things like that yeah right that's just really difficult for people to to understand when you don't have the fluency you can't possibly have the fluency of like you know every single you know person you could be policing Right. right and it's it's just weird that like you know the path to getting to the path to becoming a homicide detective is by being a you know being a regular cop for a long time so you have to go through years and years of being you know different you know like a beat cop conditioned in this particular way like like you know they have that guy who goes around and like does his like you know trainings or whatever of like you know teaching you're like a wolf and they're the sheep and whatever right and so by the time, you know, and it, it also creates the sense of, like, the sense of, like, 
real entitlement within detectives because they feel like legitimately they've you know that they've had all this training and that anyone that feels like that they could do their job better than them is just full of shit because mm-hmm. like but really their training has just been being a police officer for 10 years right and how does yeah. that you know like i'm like aside from like basic investigate investigative skills which i maintain i think can be just just be taught to somebody right because mm-hmm. we're just talking about critical thinking essentially yeah um aside from that how has you know you policing this community or over policing this community for 10 years or responding to drug to drug busts or whatever how has that prepped you to be a homicide detective detective well if anything i think that it probably does harm because once you've been a cop for 10 years i think you probably get into this mindset of being like oh this is how people behave right and you know often people don't follow those formulas that you've like you know learned through the course of your career yeah right so um but yeah i to kind of bring this back around yeah i think that i mean you know i still think that there's a lot of problems with policing and i think that um i'm nowadays i'm probably gonna lean to not giving the police more power (laughs) yeah i think i would say like on the one hand i i definitely have like you know in the past been like well like i don't think i should be particularly afraid because like what have i done right but you know you really i i don't think that it really necessarily hurts to be on the side of being more pro-privacy right because worst case scenario you know well, that's the thing. Worst case scenario, I guess you could argue that they can't catch all these bad people, right? But I do think you could argue that there are better ways to catch those people. And, like, this whole notion of, like, you know, catching and, like, whatever is, is a little outmoded anyway. We're moving more towards the language of reform, yeah. right? And, like, helping communities as opposed to, like, just catching bad guys, which is overly simplistic, right? Yeah. what's up you know we're out here it's quarantine <laughs> what are you looking forward to i'm trying to think of a, of a really good closing question but is there anything that like is going to happen for you in the future that you're looking forward to no <laughs> <laughs> not a damn thing not a damn thing <laughs> amazing are, is there, are, are you looking forward to anything uh the house might be going on a beach trip Okay. Okay. Well, we better go soon because it's getting cold. I know. Yeah. It's gonna be trash. Like, it feels like we're gonna go in October, and it's going. It's one hundred percent going to be too cold to get into the water. Absolutely. Um, but I guess <laughs> I can just. I feel like a lot of people are very much like a. I just need to be on the beach, like sitting in mm-hmm. the sand. And that's enough for me. And I'm very much not one of those people, right? Yeah, like, I don't feel that way at all. I can't even understand the people who spend literally all summer in these, like, beach towns just at the beach every day, all day. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Like, I if, I if I'm not getting in the water, like, I probably don't really want to be there. Yeah. You know, but. Yeah. Um, cool. So if you like this discussion, um, let us know at I'm the villain pod. That's our Gmail. That's our Twitter. That's our Instagram. Anyways. Bye.